Pastor Randy. Good morning to everyone. What a sweet time of singing and praying together this morning. It's really wonderful. Um, if there are any parents who'd like kids to go to age-specific uh, teaching, there's that offered now up through fifth grade. And uh, we will be, the rest of us, uh, together in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. You can open your Bible and turn with me there if you have one. And uh, if not, underneath the seat in front of you, there's a blue Bible, and we're on page 320 in those Bibles today. Uh, 320 in those Bibles uh, today. Uh, you'll probably notice today I have to read my notes a little more than normal. Uh, my lupus is acting up a bit and giving me a hard time concentrating. So I'm going to read a bit more than I normally do. I hope you'll tolerate that, please, and uh, just bear with me a bit, and hopefully uh, the Lord will give us a good word today. would appreciate your prayers. Uh, last Sunday, Ecclesiastes uh, presented us with a, a, a rather counterintuitive lesson, and that was essentially this. There are times in which we will face uh, difficulties, uh, oppressions, sufferings. There'll even be cases in which our workplaces are full of envy. But even then, Ecclesiastes says, we should give ourselves to doing our work diligently with quietness. I, I can't think of a more a counterintuitive message today than that. So that's what we thought about uh, last week. Again and again and again, the book of Ecclesiastes tells us that work is a good gift from God, that it's not something to resist but to embrace, that is good for us to enjoy the good gift of work. Be it the work of uh, being a stay-at-home mom or a laborer or a programmer, an executive, whatever the work is, work is a good gift. That's what we learned last week. Now, this week, we want to pick up right where we left off and consider this very important question. What happens when that good gift of work becomes an ultimate in our minds and hearts. When, when you take something that's designed to be a gift and turn it into a little God, then what are the consequences you can uh, be sure are going to follow? That's where uh, the preacher turns next. Because work and the money it generates and the intoxication of achievement often can become all-consuming. And when that happens, what will happen to you? When we allow work to become a functional Lord and Savior, there are unintended consequences that are sure to follow. You'll find them, an example of them, a small sample in uh, verse 7 of chapter 4. God's Word says this, Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, even a son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. 
Imagine with me a child born into a family that lived well below the poverty line. Shelter, shoes, and, and even food were not at all givens. These very basic necessities were sporadic. The child born, out, born into that kind of setting will experience certain benefits that kids born into wealthy homes will not have. And yet, there are drawbacks as well. The lack of stability, the constant bickering of parents who are trying to juggle which bill can get paid because they're living paycheck to paycheck, and the lack of any substantial medical care are just a few of the disadvantages that so many experience in that kind of home. In, in middle school, this boy was incessantly mocked because his clothes were ratty, as though ratty clothes are worth mocking somebody over. And one day, he just reached the point where uh, he had had enough. This is driving me bonkers, Lindsay. Time out. I'm going to move it to the other ear. Try again. <laughs> Thanks. Normally it's over here, but whoever used it last bent it the wrong way, so I thought I'd try it over here, but I just can't do it. I'm a little more neurotic than I realized. <laughs> One day, he'd had his fill, and so he made a silent but incredibly serious resolution. When I grow up, when I'm in charge, I will not live like this. That resolution got that boy up the next morning and every morning thereafter. It became the all-consuming passion of his life. Fast forward uh, several decades, by all accounts, this former middle schooler, now in his 50s, has met his resolution. He uh, owns a large estate in Paradise Valley. The bathroom in the master suite is bigger than any of the trailers his parents rented growing up. He has multiple cars, a cabin in Flagstaff, a beachfront condo in San Diego. And that's to say nothing of his investment portfolio with more zeros than most of us will ever see. He can go anywhere in the world for vacation, eats the finest foods, and wears the choicest of brands. Nobody's mocking him now. Materially speaking, he has no needs. As president and CEO, he sits in the corner office. But he has nobody. Nobody. While he could buy his kids anything, he doesn't know anything about them because he's never there. His wife lacked nothing materially, but she lacked everything relationally. His family resented his success because it was more important than them. And so one day, the stuff wasn't enough, and they left. And slowly but surely, he lost every single friend, too. 
The cost of his success was the ruin of his relationships. Do you realize that will happen to you? If some stuff, some success, some accolade is more important than the people, that is where that goes. This guy became nothing but a rich recluse destroyed by the seduction of his own success. Now, notice some things about somebody like that who makes those kinds of mistakes. They're right here in the passage. Verse 8 describes one person who had no other. The, The book of Ecclesiastes was originally written in Hebrew, and the Hebrew text says, literally, he has no second. He's one without another. Now, no specific relationship is pictured. The point is, He's got nobody. It, it, no business partner, no spouse, no real friend, no church, no team, no kids. Nobody. Now, that, that doesn't mean nobody's around him. But, friend, you can be among a sea of people and have nobody. Have you ever experienced that? Years ago, uh, Joe and I lived for um, about a year in the city of San Francisco. We lived just north, and Jill worked down in, um, in the city itself, and so every day when she went to work, she crossed the Golden Gate Bridge. Incredible drive. We had uh, this little tiny car that was about this far up off the ground, and um, they are rather militant about not stopping on the Golden Gate Bridge. And one day she was driving home from work, and in front of her was a, a, a painting truck. And a five-gallon bucket fell off of his truck. And she didn't know what to do, because you can't, you can't stop. Like, there's big dudes with guns. Doesn't seem good. So she thought, well, maybe I'll just clear it. So she ran over it, and uh, it, it didn't, didn't quite clear. And so my young uh, bride is now driving across the bridge to the sounds of <laughs> She reached the opposite side of the bridge, pulled over, and uh, could not get the bucket unstuck. And she has this moment when she's standing there next to the car, And if you've ever been there, she's on the north side of the bridge looking out at this incredibly beautiful city full of people with cars buzzing past her. I was taking a a Greek test at the time, and she realized, I got nobody, like nobody. What am I supposed to do? Have you ever felt that way? Not about something as silly as a bucket, but, but deep down you got nobody. That's what happens when we ascribe ultimate value to something other than God. 
You can amass many achievements and gather great wealth, but end up with nobody to share it with because you've ruined every relationship in the process. That's a dumb decision to make. But the allure of it is constantly set before us, isn't it? Now, verse 8 also describes this as someone among whom there is no end to his toil. For him, the good gift of work and the resources arising from it have become his God. If, if worship is ascribing ultimate value and highest priority to something, then this guy doesn't worship a church, he worships at the office. There's no end to his toil. As Rihanna would say, all he does is work, 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 work. There's always another sale, another email, another new client, another emerging market, another journal to be published, another, 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 another. And he thinks just a little bit more and I'll be satisfied, but he's not. That's the third thing to point out about this guy. Verse 8, the end, his eyes are never satisfied with riches. Church, if greed is your God, your thirst will never be quenched, ever. Sure, you'll have little tiny moments when a purchase feels like enough, but it'll be incredibly fleeting. There will always be something out there, bigger, faster, newer, nicer, shinier. And whatever you're trying to prove with your purchases can't actually be bought. Are you with me? I'm not telling you something this morning you don't know, but gosh, it's easy to slip into this. We are never satisfied with riches, trophies, promotions, or straight A's because worldly success cannot bear the weight of worship. It doesn't work. Listen to the way uh, the, the pop icon who for decades has remained popular, Madonna. Listen to how Madonna put it. Quote, I have an iron will, and all my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being, and then I get to another stage and think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. Again and again. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. I've always, it's always been pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended. That is the cry of people who make it. Most of us will never make it. We'll keep trying and trying and trying. But she's at the top of her game, and it still isn't enough. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Friends, work is a good gift, but it makes a terrible God. If you live to prove you're somebody by how high you climb the ladder and how much you purchase, I promise you, Ecclesiastes promises you, you will be sorely disappointed. You will waste your life. Malcolm Forbes, 
as in Forbes magazine. You've heard of him. Uh, he was known for pithy sayings. And one of them he had put on a plaque and affixed to the wall in one of his homes. It said, he who dies with the most toys wins. It's one of the mottos he lived by. Forbes was a smart man, but that was incredibly stupid. He died in 1990. He took none of those toys with him. Church, there's a better way. Work and wealth do not a meaningful life make. There's a better way to live. And it's to focus not on riches, but on relationships. Listen to how the preacher put it in verse 9. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. Brothers and sisters, here's the simple fact. Companionship beats isolation. Companionship beats isolation. Good relationships with little wealth yield much, much, much better dividends than having tremendous wealth without relationships. People, not possessions, are what matter. In fact, it's not in any way an overstatement to say that life comes down to relationships. Relationships are what matter. Of first importance, of course, is having a relationship with God. And if you don't have one, that is available to you through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We'd love to tell you more about Him. Stick around after the gathering and ask somebody near you or come to one of the pastors and say, I don't know God, and I'd like to, or I'd at least like to hear what that is like. And flowing from a restored relationship with God are relationships with people. Loving God, loving people is what life is about. Friends, we are created as social beings. And sure, there's a spectrum. Some of us are more introverted and need more time alone, or we become really grouchy. Others of us are, are more extroverted, and we need more time with people, or we become incredibly annoying. <laughs> there is a spectrum, yes, but we all need each other. It is universally true that having relationships is better than going it alone. Do you see that the isolation of this rich workaholic is part of what made him so incredibly unhappy? He appeared to have it all, but actually he had nothing at all. Because what good is a bunch of stuff with nobody to share it with? As people made in the image of God, we are intensely relational. That's why at the deepest level, there is an inexplicable, undeniable desire to know and be known. You cannot get away from it. Whatever you try to cover it up with, it's still down in there. The yearning to know and be known. There's nothing like being known. Do you have a few relationships in which 
that person understands you well enough to know probably what you're going to say before you say it. The kinds of relationships that uh, somebody who's over in your house can just go and open up the fridge and get something out, that's not weird. They don't even have to ask. The, the kind of re- relationship um, where you finish each other's sandwiches. <laughs> truly, truly being known. This is part of what makes the knowledge that God has of us so precious. When he says he knows the number of hairs on our head, it's not a joke for the bald. This is God saying, I know everything about you. And in some tiny way, we give great gifts to each other when we, when we let each other in where we can really know each other. Of all the places in the world that ought to be happening, it's, it's here. It's among the people of God. A profound loss of a community is part of what has made the pandemic so painful. The mitigation strategies required to combat COVID-19, especially those early lockdowns, were devastating relationally. The impact of this has been profound. And we do not see the end of it yet. Recent studies have shown an enormous decline in mental health, an enormous incline in destructive things like alcoholism. My point is not to say that the lockdowns were wrong, but rather simply to point out the last 18, 19, 20 months have shown Two are better than one. We need each other. Long periods of loneliness are profoundly unhelpful. Now, why are two better than one? What is it about relationships that make them so helpful? What benefits do they yield? The text is going to tell us some, and they're going to sound super weird to you because they're culturally specific. And so we'll read it. You'll probably laugh, at least on the inside. And then I hope I can explain them and help you to see why they're more than funny, okay? Uh, Verse 10, for if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, but has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. It's very likely here that the preacher had in mind uh, people on a journey. It was risky to travel in the ancient world and incredibly dangerous to do so alone. Obviously, you weren't getting in cars and plains. You're walking. Much of the geography of Israel is desert. It's not unlike where, where we live. Imagine going out into the desert, traveling all by yourself. It'd be hard. And so, 
The author is describing here, the terrain is rugged, the nights are cold, and there are all kinds of places for robbers to hide. And it's although he's implying on the journey of life, you need companions. It's not safe without them. What benefits does this preacher envision? Well, he he says three things. Companions provide help. If you fall, and if you read the text closely, I never noticed this until this last week studying this. It doesn't describe the one falling and the other helping them up. That's the way I always thought of it. It describes them both falling. And then they both, the one who's fallen helps the other who's fallen. What a great picture of how life actually works. And it says companions provide warmth, a second reason. Verse 11 mentions two keeping each other warm. Now, single guys, this is not a pickup line. (laughs) This describes two people out in the desert where it's freezing, sleeping back to back, keeping each other warm because they don't have blankets. They're traveling. And third, it says companions provide protection. You're a lot more likely to get robbed and harmed alone than you are with another. So often when I meet with one of the ladies in our church, I notice when she sets her keys down on the table, there's mace. Why? Well, for obvious reasons. If she's ever alone, there's an acute sense of, I may be in danger. The point in these cultural examples is that companions bless each other in important, tangible, practical ways. Beloved, I hope the, the, the implied admonition here is clear by now. Companionship beats isolation. So invest in community. Give yourself to hard work, but don't let work become God. Invest in people. Be intentional at home, at work, at school, and especially at church to give yourself to the investment of meaningful relationships. Yes, it takes time, but the rewards of being known and of knowing are incalculable. Now, I am uh, incredibly encouraged to be able to stand here today and say to you in all sincerity, in many ways, we do this well as a church. We're not a place that people drive in and nobody knows each other and we smile and sing and then part and that's it. Praise God for that. Thank you that you take seriously the one another's of the scriptures. But let's excel still more. God uh, continues to bring more and more guests every single Sunday. Come a little bit earlier. The people often sitting in here all by themselves are people in here for the very first time. They haven't yet learned. You're not supposed to come until well after it starts. (laughs) So come a little bit earlier and visit with them. 
And God continues to add to our membership as a church family. I mean, look around, brothers and sisters. Who in here is newer than you? Who in here may not yet have some people that really know them? Well, friend, if you're a member here, then you have committed to doing, yes, everybody has different amounts of time, different energy levels, different health considerations, different seasons of life, but you've committed to the extent that you're able at this particular moment in life to know and be known. So who can you, who can you go to and say, after connection class, let's go get lunch. I'd love to get to know you a little bit. Who haven't you seen in a while that you could go check on? Who needs help in some practical way? What engaged couple would benefit from the wisdom of a seasoned husband and wife? What new Christian among us needs to be discipled? What college student could you have come over and do laundry? And then while the dryer is churning the clothes, you could sit and talk about this passage. There are brothers and sisters that need a shoulder to cry on, and there's others who need a lighthearted conversation full of laughter. Some would really benefit from a simple question. How are you? Really? Others need to take the initiative to be humble enough to confess our sins and seek counsel. The, the, the body of Christ is designed to be an ecosystem of grace, a people among whom the gospel doctrine we hold so dear is continually creating a gospel culture where we not only hear the gospel, but we experience its rich benefits relationally. Churches are where there are people among whom love is the norm. Accountability is seen as helpful, not problematic where we help each other, serve each other, speak truth to each other. Brothers and sisters, Jesus put it this way, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love is to be the defining characteristic of the people of God. And you can't love from a distance. Christian, what can you do this week to pursue knowing and being known? I don't care if you don't listen to anything else I say, if you really will think about that. What can you do practically until we're get together again in seven days to pursue just a little bit of knowing someone and letting somebody else in? so that you can be known. Companionship beats isolation. Now, if you notice the logic of this passage, it's essentially saying if one is bad and two is better, then imagine three. That's the point of the, the analogy of a threefold cord. It's not easily broken. 
One bad, two good, three even better. That brings us to our last paragraph. Verse 13, better, is, better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's palace. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. Huh? <laughs> it feels like um, somebody was copying and pasting and stuck that in the wrong spot, doesn't it? I mean, at first glance, what does that have to do with what we've been talking about? Well, this is admittedly a rather difficult paragraph to interpret, but here's the gist of it. There is an old and foolish king who is just like the rich recluse we talked about earlier. He's got nobody. Both the rich recluse and the king who won't listen to any of his advisors are at the top, but their lives have become a waste because they're all alone. The king was once a hero. He went from rags to riches, from poverty to the height of power, and yet as he aged, he stopped listening to counsel. He no longer took advice. He went into isolation. He thought, I've made it. I don't need anybody else. I have it by myself. This so often happens. Proverbs warns against it. Proverbs says in verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 15, the, fool, the way of the fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Chapter 11, verse 14, where there is no guidance, a people falls, but in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. This is clear across Scripture and in our own lives. We see examples of it abounding. The king neglected wisdom. He sat alone on his throne. He had no companionship, no counselors, no ear to the ground to listen to the people. And that turned out to be his ruin. This poor and wise youth replaced him. The political winds shifted in his direction. And so a second king came to the pinnacle of his power. He was surrounded by praise because he didn't act like that other king. He listened to people. And what so often he heard was, you're amazing, we love you. All hail the king. He got likes every time he tweeted. This guy was not alone, and he didn't just have a second, and three was not even close to describing what he had. He had everybody eaten out of his hands. 
So if one is bad and two is good and three is amazing, it makes logical sense to think. Then the more and more and more and more and more relationships one amasses, then the better their life will be. I think it's a logical train of thought. His community was huge. But we can see today in ways that I can't imagine were true, in, as evident when Ecclesiastes was written, that um, the masses are fickle. You can have all kinds of popularity and then say one thing the masses don't like and they are literally done with you. The second king learned this the hard way. Those who came later didn't rejoice in him. They didn't follow his leadership. They didn't support him. He grew old and was tossed aside for yet another king. The fanfare didn't last because the political winds shifted yet again. Now, what's the point of this rather depressing story? Well, we needed one. We're in Ecclesiastes. (laughs) The point is that under the sun, community is flawed. It's imperfect. It's in some ways busted and broken. Relationships are good, but they're not perfect. People are erratic, we're mean, we're selfish, very, very, very often. We, we sort of pretend to love, but what's actually happening is we're using another to get their love. Even in the church, we hurt each other. If you, by the grace of God, experience great relationships, be careful not to elevate those relationships in such a way that you expect those folks will never, ever, ever fail me. Because they will, inevitably. They will. Companionship is good, but it is riddled with problems and pain. Maybe we could sum up the the entire passage like this. Since companionship beats isolation, invest in community. But without becoming convinced, it will be without flaws. You will be hurt and you will cause hurt. I assume there are some of you right now listening to me that you've experienced a hurt so intense, you've been let down so deeply, that you've sort of resolved, I'm not letting anybody get that close again. It hurt too much. But friend, that is not the solution. The solution is don't hold up people in such a way that you treat them like they have to be perfect like God. The solution is to forgive and try again. 
Now, this raises a a very important final question. Uh, How can we be people who know we'll be hurt, hurt badly, and yet still we don't shrink back? How can we know if I engage with this person and I really get to know them, eventually they're going to do something that's rather crushing, and yet I'm going to do it anyway. How do, you, how do you be somebody like that? How can we be a church like that? Well, the answer is to look to Christ. Think about what He went through. Jesus drew tremendous crowds. He received the highest praise. Those of you who know your Bible well, picture him sitting on that donkey, headed into the city of Jerusalem for the last time. The crowds were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. They were saying to him, you are the Messiah we've been waiting for millennia for. And yet, just a few days later, those masses rejected Jesus, arrested Him, spit on Him, beat Him, stripped Him naked, and hoisted Him on a cross. And He knew that was coming. Jesus knew as He went through His darkest of days that His disciples, 100% of them, would desert Him. And yet, For years, he poured his life into them. Jesus died in isolation, an isolation so deep that the sweet companionship of the Father he'd known for all eternity was strained by the sin he absorbed in himself as our substitute. And yet he loved people anyway. The gospel is the scandalous news that Jesus was rejected so that we could be included. He was killed so that we'd be given life. He was tortured so that we would be treasured. Community is flawed because we are flawed. You have hurt people ever bit as much as you've been hurt. How do you... Go again into more relationships. Well, it's by looking to Christ. Because in Christ, we are flawed but forgiven. In Christ, we're welcomed by God. And so we welcome each other. Let's pray. Before I pray on our behalf, I invite you to just to visit with the Lord yourself.
Father, I believe this is an important moment for us. That there are people right now in the room wrestling with, will I forgive that person? Will I try again with this new person? Is it worth it? Can't, am I lovable? Do I have anything to offer somebody else? I've tried, and I just really am not known. I'm alone. Father, I pray that you would minister your grace and mercy by the Spirit. And that all of us who know you would understand that we have been embraced by you and welcomed into a trinity level of unity in you. And that we'd be so convinced of that, that we would see that we can need relationships with people without worshiping them and using them and manipulating them. We are freed up in you to love because we're loved. Thank you, Father, that in your great kindness, what we've looked about at and talked about today isn't foreign to our experience. Many of us, by your grace, do know and are known. You've done a special thing here among us, and we thank you for it. But would you help us to excel still more? And as we observe the Lord's Supper in in just a moment, this is a tangible way you've given us to remember you and each other. Would you make it a sweet time for us? In Jesus' name, amen.